Well, as many of you know, I had the privilege last spring around April to go overseas and to visit our missionaries uh, at a conference. And it was a wonderful time. It was such a blessing for me. I hope it was a blessing for them because I was there for a pastoral visit. Uh, but it was wonderful to just hear about the island they're settling in on, to see their kids. They've grown so much. If you haven't seen them since the cards in the back, they're years older now. And it's just so fun to not just hear about what's going on or not just read about it on a prayer sheet or pray for it, but to see them and be with them face to face. It was such a blessing in so many ways. But as I spent time with them, and especially the other missionaries that were from all over the world around at that conference, I was, I was reminded just how difficult and overwhelming and especially lonely their task is. Almost every missionary I met talked about being homesick. And they were homesick for a variety of reasons. But there was one common reason in particular. The one thing that they missed the most was the church. These saints were so hungry for corporate worship. So hungry to hear God's word preached. To pray and sing God's word. So hungry for, for time with other believers that they were sacrificing their sleep on this trip, staying up so late and getting up so early just to be around other believers, just to pray for them because they knew it was such a short time that they get to be together. And most of them were shocked that I was there for a pastoral visit of all things. And these other missionaries, they said, they, they told me that I love my church, but I so wish our church had something like that. For the pastor to come visit or for other people to come visit for us. Because we just often feel so disconnected. So far from the people of God and even at times far from God himself. Because they always feel like the outcast, don't they? Not just because they're they're foreigners. But because they're one of the only believers around for miles. And please, look, don't get me wrong. Our missionaries are doing fine. They're not bitter, ready to run home, or upset, or frustrated. But I get a sense in all the missionaries that I've met that they're all a bit lonely. They so appreciate your prayers and support. But they long to not just be prayed for, but to pray with the body of Christ. Well, I didn't write this sermon just for missionaries. But... I'm sure you know you don't have to go to the ends of the earth to feel lonely, do you? Or overwhelmed. Or to have a heavy, burdened heart. It's actually kind of the strange things about our world. We're more connected than ever because of technology. I can pull out my phone right now and text those missionaries and hear back from them within minutes. But even though we're so connected by technology, we live in one of the most lonely and overwhelmed generations in history, don't we? So many people struggle with fear and anxiety and depression and so many struggle silently because they don't want others to know that they're weak. They don't want others to know that they're having a hard time, especially those that have grown up in the church. I mean, you might be here now are surrounded by believers and you might be frustrated and feel like you're a million miles away because no one knows the pain that's going on in your heart. No one understands the struggles you've had this week with temptation. And it feels like you're not only far away from the saints of the living God, but you're far away from God himself. Because he he seems to be silent when you pray. And he doesn't act when you expect him to. 
So brothers and sisters, what are, what are we supposed to do in moments like this? What are Christians supposed to do when we feel lonely and overwhelmed and burdened and even begin to doubt? When we feel far from the people of God and even at times far from God himself because he seems silent. Well, David tells us in this psalm. Psalm 61 helps us to come back to God in a sense. If you want to think of this psalm, really, in a way, it's kind of a road map back to God. Now, please don't misunderstand what I mean by that. I'm not saying this is like a program. It's a mechanical process you follow. Here's five steps to lift you out of darkness. That's not really what I'm saying here. I'm not even saying this is just a tool that you use yourself to lift yourself out of this burdened heart. No, these are means that God has given us to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to lift us out when, of that burdensome, that overwhelmed feeling when we are in that place. Really, it's a way that we draw near to God as he draws near to us and ministers to us in our time of need, as James 4.8 says. So what should we do when we are overwhelmed and, and feel far from God? David gives us three answers in this psalm. Three answers here. First, we need to cry out to Christ, our rock, for rescue. Cry out to him for help. Second, we need to draw near to God. And especially in this, this psalm, it's talking about in the context of corporate worship. And then third, we need to remember God's promises, especially by singing those promises and praising the God that gave it to us. So that's where we are today. Cry out to Christ in verses 1 through 3. Draw near to God in verse 4 and remember God's promises in verses 5 through 8. And brothers and sisters, I hope you noticed from the beginning, these are simple, ordinary. There's no shock here. There's no extraordinary thing about them. These are the means of grace. Ordinary means of grace that God has given us to grow in grace, to grow and develop and trust our Lord. So first, let's look in verse 1 as David teaches us how to cry out to Christ, our rock. And the first thing I want you to notice in this psalm is that we don't know when or why David wrote this psalm. Normally we get those details, don't we? Those historical circumstances in the superscript. But you can see the superscript is very simple. It says to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. So all we know is that David wrote this song sometime in his life. And verses 1 and 2 are really vague on the circumstances as well. It certainly seems like David is, is desperate. He's saying, verse 1, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. But he doesn't tell us why. The only circumstance we get in verse 2 is, from the ends of the earth, from the end of the earth, excuse me, I call to you. So David is far away in some sense. Now, is he literally at the ends of the earth? Well, definitely not. Because we know David, and we've talked about this before, he spent almost his whole life in and around the promised land. He did go on some military campaigns outside the promised land. Chad talked about that last week with Psalm 60, where David was far away and his home was being attacked. So David did go a little bit away, but it wasn't that far. Really, if we think of a modern-day sense, if you know where Israel is, the farthest David got was about modern-day Iraq. Now, that might be considered the ends of the earth to a Jew, but we definitely know it's not literally the ends of the earth. But here's what we need to remember. At this point in history... When the Jews were away from the promised land, away from the people of God, and especially away from God's house, 
God's tent, God's tabernacle, they saw that, they felt that as if they were at the ends of the earth. Because they were away from that special presence of God at the tabernacle, which they got to draw near in corporate worship. Don't get me wrong, they believed God was omnipresent. God was everywhere present with his whole being. It wouldn't make sense for David to cry out from the ends of the earth if he didn't think that God was there and that God would hear him. But these saints didn't have churches all over the world to gather with in corporate worship. They only had Jerusalem. That was the place where they could worship God and draw into his presence in that very unique way. Now, in a way, I think our missionaries get this to an extent. Although they they are around a few believers and they can gather in corporate worship, they're really far away from any kind of established church. A church like what they're used to. They're in home churches and, and small churches. And I'm sure they long to be where you are right now. In fact, I've heard them say that. Long to sit where you are and to be with the corporate body as a whole, not just a, a few believers. So they would get the sense that David is having here. Longing to be home, longing to be in corporate worship, but being far from what he sees as the presence, the unique presence of God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Now it's possible here that this ends of the earth language is also exile language. Uh, David clearly refers to the Davidic covenant in verses 6 through 7. Now those things happened after his first exile, after King Saul, but before the second. So it's possible that this is when David was on the run from his son Absalom. Just stop and think about that for a second. On the run from his son. That sentence should never be said. No parent should ever have to know what that's like to be on the run from their own child. David experienced that as his son was taking his kingdom away. I'm sure David was overwhelmed, and that would explain what verse 2 says at the very end. From the ends of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. My heart is weak, overwhelmed, heavy. I love the way John Calvin translates this. He says it's almost as if David is saying his heart is being tossed about. Like he's lost at sea or drowning at sea. So desperate for something stable to hold on to. So desperate for that rock he can grab a hold of and finally have peace and rest. Because he's just being tossed about by everything in the world. If this is really the context, then a faint heart has got to be just a tremendous understatement for how David really feels. But I want to remind you, we don't really know for sure that's when he's going. That's my best guess. But you know what? I'm really, I'm really glad we don't really know. Because none of us, I hope, will ever be on the run from our children. Very few of us will be far away at war like David might be here. But every single one of us know, knows what it's like to feel lonely and burdened and overwhelmed. Kids, I bet some of you are feeling that right now as school gets going. A new school year is so exciting and and encouraging in a lot of ways, but it can be very overwhelming, especially if you're in a new school, can't it? You're going to a place where you've lost all of your friends and you have to make brand new ones. And even though you're surrounded by all these people that are your age going through the exact same thing, you can feel so alone, even surrounded by those other students. 
And some of you older kids, teenagers especially, maybe you're feeling overwhelmed because you're carrying the burden of, of holding sin inside. You young men in particular, hiding pornography or just older kids in general, the jealousy that comes or the bitterness that comes with your parents or with your friends and, and all the troubles that are going on. Or maybe you're just overwhelmed with doubts. Young people wondering, well, is this Christian thing really all worth it? I look at my parents and it sure seems like their following the Lord is a lot harder than the world. The world seems to have a lot, of, lot to offer, so why would I go down that path? And you're beginning to doubt all these truths that you were raised up to believe. And kids, the more you bury those struggles, the more you push those secret sins down and those doubts down, the, the more lonely and disconnected you will feel from God and from His people. Now, kids aren't the only ones who struggle with these things. Adults, we, we get a sense of this too, don't we? Maybe some of you are struggling from being overwhelmed and lonely even in some of your closest relationships. You're in a hard marriage and the person you should feel closest to feels so far apart from you. You feel like a stranger even in your own home. There may be you moms struggling with the, the challenges of having young kids and it's so hard to get anywhere, especially church. And as soon as you come into the service and everything gets quiet, you know that they get really loud, right? And so you have to step out. You miss the sermon. You miss the, the fellowship time and you're so hungry to have adult interaction. So hungry to fellowship and, and you love your child so much, but you still feel isolated and alone. Or maybe there are some here even that have, in a sense, voluntarily exiled yourself from God's people. That you've been living, maybe even just this summer, neglecting to gather with the saints in corporate worship to encourage one another, as Hebrews 10.25 warns us against. And you push corporate worship aside, all in the name of busyness. I have to work. Our, our kids have lots of sports or things going on. We're just really busy. Or you know what? We just really need a break. It's hot. We've got to get out of town. we just got to get somewhere else. Yes, corporate worship is important, but, but we need to get out of here. Look, I'm not saying there's something wrong with vacation or fun or just even sports in general. But when we elevate these things above corporate worship, we neglect the command to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day, either here or other places. It's almost as if we're exiling ourselves from God cutting ourselves off from the means of grace that God uses to help us grow in grace. All of these situations and so much more can lead to the sense of of spiritual dryness where we feel so far away from God and His people even when we're right here hearing God's Word. But I have good news for you this morning. If this sounds familiar, if you're feeling in in any way overwhelmed by these things, the good news is that you're not too far away from God. Not too far away to be heard by God. To have your prayers answered. And God is faithful to lead you back to Him. And that's where David goes next. Look at verse 2. In the middle of verse 2, does David cries out for rescue. Probably the most memorable verse in this whole psalm. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
Memorize that verse. It's a wonderful, glorious prayer that David has. Lead me to the rock, Lord. Notice, David doesn't say, Lord, just show me the way. Just give me some direction. I just need a little bit of help. I need a map. Just give me a hint and I'll be on my way. David doesn't need assistance here. He needs help because he's helpless. He's stuck. Actually, the the English makes this a lot less uh, intense. Really, I think you could translate this. Lead me to the rock that is too high for me. Lead me to the rock that is out of my reach. You get what David's saying, don't you? David's saying, Lord, lead me where I can't go myself. This is not a cry of a lost man in need of a little bit of directions or a a strong king in need of some backup. No, this is the cry of a weak and helpless child of God reaching out his hand to his father saying, take my hand and lead me. It's David saying, Lord, I don't know the way out of this. Even if I did, I, I don't have the strength or the ability to fix this issue. But I know you. I know my God. And I know you're good. You're a good and faithful father. In fact, I remember you have already been my rock. Look at what he says in verse 3. For you have been, past tense, have been my refuge. A strong tower against the enemy. David's saying, God, you've never let me down. Even when I was on the run from Saul, even when I was surrounded by terrible enemies, you never broke your promise. You never ceased to provide for me, protect me, and take care of me. You are faithful like the rock. That's why David calls God his rock. It's one of his favorite images in all the Psalms. It shows up at least 21 times in all of David's Psalms. One great example is in the very next Psalm, Psalm 62, verse 6. Listen to this. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So this rock is a wonderful picture of God's mercy and faithfulness and care and protection of David. But we know in the context of all of Scripture, this rock is so much more, isn't it? Because we know this is also a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock, the foundation, the very cornerstone of our salvation. Acts 4 verse 11, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the leaders of Israel. He has become the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which men must be saved. He's it. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's our only source of salvation there is. He is the only rock, the only hope for an overwhelmed heart. You see what David and Peter are saying. The fall of humanity was so bad. We can't lift ourselves out of the darkness. We can't pull ourselves out of this sinful state. We can't obey God well enough because we're dead. We're not just drowning in the ocean. We're lifeless, dead people in the ocean, enemies of God. We need God to pull us out of the sea of judgment and sin and give us CPR to start our dead hearts again, to lift us out and put us on the rock of salvation out of reach 
from judgment and sin. That's exactly what Jesus did. He did what we couldn't do, what we failed to do, what was out of reach for us. He lived the life that we failed to live. Went to the cross and paid for sin in our place. Rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and ascended on high where he rules and reigns over this entire world. So that when sinners like us cry out to him, we have a rock of salvation. He is our refuge our strong tower from the wrath to come. And Paul even adds to this, he's not just the beginner of our faith and we just finish it off. No, he is the spiritual rock that sustains us. In 1 Corinthians 10, you remember the story in the Old Testament in Numbers 20, when the the saints of the living God, the Israelites were in the desert and they were wandering around and they were without water and desperate for any kind of sustenance. And Moses goes and he strikes the rock and water comes pouring out and God's people are saved. It's actually pretty incredible. They bring that rock along with them in the wilderness to continue to have that water, that living water. And Paul says this about that rock in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Israel drank the same spiritual drink that we have. Well, what's that? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock Christ. You see the picture here, brothers and sisters? Christ is the rock that was broken, that was cleft for us. And out of him pours living water. And as we're united to him by faith, we are sustained in our faith. He perseveres us, or preserves us, excuse me, so that we make it all the way home. You see, what we have here in David's words is an invitation to cling to the rock that is Christ. To recognize that you're overwhelmed by the situation in this world is just the beginning. You should be far more overwhelmed by the state of your soul if you don't know Christ. Recognize that you can't do anything to save yourself. You don't need to try to fix yourself or run to the world for solutions. You might even be at that point where you're despairing that you can't fix it. Your only hope is to humble yourself before God. Like a young child reaching out to God in faith. Saying, Lord, take my hand. We do that through faith and repentance. Take my hand, Lord. Lead me away from my sin and lead me to the rock. The rock that is higher than I. The rock that was broken for me. The rock that is Christ. The only refuge from sin and judgment. The strong tower from the wrath to come. That's what David's showing us here. It's the first thing we should do when we're overwhelmed by this world or our sin. We feel far from God. It's to cry out to Christ, our rock for refuge. And secondly, and I don't say secondly because that's not enough, by the way. Secondly, because these are the means by which we grow in our relationship with God. So secondly, we need to draw near to God, especially in the context of corporate worship. We see that in verse 4 as we see David longing to commune with his God. Look at verse 4 with me. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. This is beautiful imagery that we've seen a lot this summer, haven't we? 
We've seen this imagery of wings back in Psalm 57, which was like a month ago. And it's, it's highly possible that here is the same illustration as in Psalm 57, where these wings are the wings of a mother hen. That picture of a mother hen spreading her wings and covering her chicks and David saying, I want to run to you, God, and feel that protection of your wings. Take refuge under your strength. That may be what David's talking about here. But I actually agree with a lot of commentators, especially older commentators, that see a very clear connection here between the tent and the wings. That what we have here, since David is far from home, To the ends of the earth, as we saw in verse 2, he's far away from the tent, the tabernacle, the meeting place of God. He's longing to be back home at the house of his Lord, the tabernacle. But he doesn't just want to settle to be near the tabernacle. He wants to go right in to the Holy of Holies itself. His longing is to be sheltered under the wings of the seraphim in the very Holy of Holies itself. You remember that image, don't you? Remember the Ark of the Covenant and those golden seraphim on top that are described in the book of Exodus? Or who am I kidding? We probably remember it from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That's probably where we all remember it. So picture picture that image in your head. The Ark of the Covenant, those golden wings right there. David's saying, that that's where I want to be. In the Holy of Holies itself. Why? Because that's the safest place I know. That's the true refuge from anything in this world. See, David is saying here, look, I don't, I don't just want to use God to get rescue. I don't just want to seek his help or his hand. I want God himself. I want to draw near to God and be as close as I possibly can be to him. And I don't ever want to leave. I think the sons of Korah perfectly sum up what David is, is feeling here and, and expressing here in Psalm 84, verse 10. They say, for a day in your courts, it's better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what David wants. That's what all of God's children want, to dwell with their God. But there's one really big problem. David is not welcome in the Holy of Holies, is he? If he were to make it back home, And then to to barge into the Holy of Holies, what would happen? God would kill him on the spot. It's not the safest place for sinners to be. It's the most dangerous place for them to be. Because the only person welcome into the Holy of Holies at this point is one man, the high priest. And only then, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. And only then, after he's cleansed himself, put on holy garments, made sacrifices for the people and sacrifices for himself... And even only then, after he takes this censer, which covers the room in smoke, so it's like this moving veil to protect him from looking on the glory of God at the Ark of the Covenant and dying instantly. Why in the world would David want to go there? He's not the priest, the high priest. He's not welcome there. Not yet. But David believes that's where all God's people belong. And he believes that all God's people will be welcomed into the Holy of Holies one day forever. See, David believes that all the high priests he's seen, all the sacrifices and the temple worship, they were all shadows of a greater priest that's coming. The last priest who would offer one final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. 
And he would open the way to the Holy of Holies so all of God's people can dwell with God forever. They will no longer be unwelcome in God's presence because they will be holy and righteous. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of being on the other side of the cross to seeing some of those longings, those prayers fulfilled in our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 21 says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, draw near to God in the Holy of Holies with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ has purified us so that we can draw near to God in holiness. We are welcome into God's presence. And amazingly, this is not a promise just for the Jews, just for the the covenant people of God, but even for Gentile sinners like us. The people that are dwelling at the ends of the earth have gone as far away from God as they can geographically and spiritually. But this is hope for those who are far off. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Listen, having no hope and without God in the world. That is our fallen and helpless state. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. And you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. See what Paul is saying? We're not just a holy priesthood. Who have been purified so that we can draw near to God in the holy holies. That's absolutely true. We are also children. Blood bought children of God who draw near to God as our Father. We are those that bear the family name through adoption in baptism. Those that are welcome into God's family, and we never have to leave. That's the glories of the gospel. That's what David is longing for. And brothers and sisters, even though we're not completely in God's presence in one sense, physically in some senses, there's a way in which we taste this even now, don't we? in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and we are the tabernacle of God. It's one of the glorious things that happens at Pentecost, that pillar of fire that was dwelling over the tabernacle that David longed to see now came to dwell on the heads of his disciples because they are the temple being built together into a house where God dwells, Ephesians 2. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to make a religious pilgrimage to some particular place in the world. No, God has come to us. And when we gather as saints of the living God, as God dwells within us, we can have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Why? Because of the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We are welcome into the holy of holies, and that's what we're doing right now. Now, we're a long way from Jerusalem. You might feel a long way from God, but that's not true. As we draw near to God in corporate worship, it's Christ that speaks to us. Christ that greets us. 
Christ that welcomes us to a meal with Him. Christ that blesses us and encourages us and leaves us with a benediction ringing in our ears. And you know what? Even our missionaries get a taste of this because as they draw near in corporate worship, it might look a lot different than what we're doing right now. But as they draw near, they might be far from us and far from most Christians in the world. But as they gather together, God has drawn near to them. Even at the ends of the earth. I think about what a great encouragement that is as we even think about sending off a few missionaries soon. No matter where they go, Christ has promised to be with them. Brothers and sisters, if you realize you are far from God because of sins or sorrows or suffering, one of the best ways to fight that weariness is not to pull yourself away from the body of God in corporate worship. I know that's our temptation to pull back and say, I don't want to deal with people right now. I don't want to be near all those things that remind me of just how far God is away from me. What we need most in those times is to draw near to God in corporate worship as often as we can. Morning and evening, every chance we get. Because as we draw near to God, God draws near to us and ministers to us in our time of need. So what should we do when we're overwhelmed, feel far from God? We cry out to Christ, our rock. We draw near to God in worship. And last, thirdly, we remember God's promises. Remember God's promises, especially as we sing those promises. Look at verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage, the inheritance of those who fear your name. But what is David talking about here? What kind of inheritance could he possibly be imagining? Is this a physical inheritance? Some worldly material blessings? Maybe it's the promised land that was often mentioned as the inheritance of God's people? I don't think that's it because David was already in the promised land. He had all those material blessings as king. Although if he's on the run from Absalom, he might be losing those blessings in a lot of ways. As his kingdom is taken from him. But still, I don't think that's the inheritance that David has in mind here. It's not worldly or earthly in any way. It's the inheritance that he was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant. You remember those promises? Just in case you don't, please keep your finger here. Turn to 2 Samuel 7 just briefly. Keep your finger in Psalm 61. We'll come right back. 2 Samuel chapter 7, this great Davidic covenant I want you to see these promises so that we can see how they're woven into David's prayer here. And you need to remember, this is the point in David's life where he is, he's already become king. He's living in the promised land. There's peace in the land for once. He's built this glorious, uh, basically dwelling place for him. And he starts to talk to Nathan about building God a house. He says to Nathan the prophet, look, I dwell in this massive palace and there God is in this little bitty rickety old tent. And God gives Nathan an answer to pass along to David. God says to David, well, I never asked for a house. And what kind of house would you even build for me anyway? The Lord of the universe. I made all things. And then God turns it around and says, David, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your household. In fact, David, your inheritance will be greater than you can even imagine. Look in 2 Samuel verse 
chapter 7, verse 10. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Already sounds glorious, doesn't it? A wonderful inheritance that David's never even completely seen in his life. But he's just getting started. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When all your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, David. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, the church. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house, David, your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's an inheritance. Blows anything else we can get in this world out of the water. David has an eternal inheritance His kingdom, his throne will last forever because his offspring will sit on the throne of God ruling the world forever. Now turn back to Psalm 61. Look at what David prays next. He prays these prayers. He prays these promises. And it's shocking because right in the middle of pleading for his own life, for his own help, he starts praying for someone else. He says in verse 6, Prolong the life of the king. What king? Is that David? Well, he would have said my life or my kingdom, but he doesn't. He's praying for a bigger king, a greater king, his own son. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Where is he getting that? Those promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is David's greater son, the Messiah. The Satan crusher, the seed of the woman. David says, long live that king. Not long live this king, not preserve my life. No, that king is the one we need. That king is what all God's people need. That's the people, uh, the inheritance of all of those who fear God. Look at the middle of verse 7. He says, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. David says, remember, you promised to be a father to him. You promised to treat him as a son. So what I'm praying for is that you keep your word. Your steadfast, sure love for David, as Jason prayed earlier, let that pour over to Christ. Let that be his hope. Why is David praying for someone else? Well, because that is his inheritance. Christ is is his inheritance. And what do we see when Christ comes? Matthew 17, when Jesus is baptized, a voice calls from the clouds and says, this is my beloved son 
whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And even Jesus says in John 3 verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. What certainly sounds like a fulfillment of David's promises. That sounds exactly like what David was praying for. So David is looking through the promises all the way to Christ, his great inheritance, and all the blessings that come to him. And you know what? We are blessed with this same inheritance, aren't we? Because the love and faithfulness of the Father that was given to Jesus overflows on those who are united to him by faith. It spills over, and we receive those glorious blessings of covenant faithfulness and love and goodness and grace of the living God. Romans 5, 1 and 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts, overflowing from Christ through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And we know that the Holy Spirit is a seal of that inheritance. It's a promise that God's word is good. That our inheritance will come. That the covenant love and faithfulness given to Christ and to David will be ours. By faith in Christ. And even though we're not there yet. Where all these promises are fulfilled. We don't enjoy the fullness of that inheritance in the eternal state. We still know it's coming. And we long for the day, like David, for when our king will return and destroy Satan's sin and death for good and usher us into our heavenly home where we will dwell with God in perfect holiness and communion forever. That's what we long for. That's what all the promises point to. So what do we do until then? We remember these promises. We memorize these promises, this hope that we have. We meditate on God's word. And how do we do that? David shows us how in verse 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David knows one of the best ways to fight weariness, to fight sorrow, to fight that broken, burdened heart is not just to cry out to God, not just to draw near to God in corporate worship. Those are wonderful things. But David says we remember God's promises when we sing to him, when we sing those promises back to him, exactly like what we do this morning. We sing songs saturated with those promises, saturated with Scripture. We even sing the Psalms themselves, as we're hoping to do more of in the future. And we sing songs like this, Hiding in Thee, Hiding in Thee by William Cushing. I don't know if you've ever heard this song. I know we've never sung it here at Sovereign Grace. I actually heard it a few weeks ago when I preached at Ebenezer Church. And it was a wonderful psalm, um, and it's based on Psalm 61. Cushing wrote this psalm when he had that faint, wearisome heart. He wrote this song based on Psalm 61, and here's what it says. Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I. My soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. Alone I would perish. Undone would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Hiding in thee. Hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. Let's pray that God 
Help us cling to Christ, our hope. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Spirit's work within our hearts, for your wonderful promises that you would come and minister through your word. Father, empower us to be faithful in using these means of grace to draw near to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to be a faithful father to all of us, to those that are weary and burdened and struggling with so many different things in this world, whether it be pain and sickness or just the the spiritual burden of sin. Father, lead us to the rock that is higher than I. Lead us to Christ, our only hope. And remind us that he was broken for us so that we might have life. And Lord, let us praise your name and praise your son so that you might receive the glory in redeeming and rescuing your people. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.